Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello everyone, I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today I'm speaking with Andrew Varga about his YA Jump in Time series, of which The Last Saxon King and The Celtic Deception have already appeared. Both The Last Saxon King and its sequel, The Celtic Deception, take place in the British Isles. The first right around the Norman Conquest in 1066, and the second near the end of a much earlier invasion, that of the Romans. But in both cases, the first person we meet is a contemporary teenager, Daniel Renfrew. The excerpt that follows comes from the first novel, published earlier this year by Imperfect Books. As I stood staring at the display of new video games in the store's front window, a security guard appeared behind me in the reflection. He hovered just a few steps back, rhythmically slapping a large black flashlight into the palm of his hand. "'What you doing out of school, kid?' he asked, in the accusing tone that all mall cops use with teenagers, the tone that implied he already knew I was up to something, even though I was just standing there minding my own business. I didn't make the slightest movement to acknowledge his presence. "'I'm homeschooled.' "'Well, shouldn't you be at home, then?' He smacked his flashlight into his palm with a meaty thump. My dad gave me the day off. And now, please join me in welcoming Andrew Varga. Hello, Andrew. Thank you for agreeing to talk with me today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. You mentioned on your website that you've always had an interest in history. Before we get into the books, tell us a bit about how you became a novelist. Well, I graduated university with a specialist in history and a major in English, so I was I had a focus on writing disciplines. And unfortunately, I graduated university into a recession, so I was working as a waiter at the time. And I felt my university degree was being wasted as a waiter. And I thought I needed to do something, something to exercise my creativity instead of just scribbling orders on a pad. So that's actually where I started writing some short stories. And then I wrote a fantasy novel, too, that didn't really go anywhere. But it was just a gradual progression from there that kind of moved me onto the writing path. And what made you decide to focus on YA fiction in particular? Well, as I was going along this path of short stories and then my fantasy novel, as I said, um, nothing really stuck. Nothing. I didn't really feel great about anything that I was doing. And as my kids were getting older and older during this time, they knew that I loved history. And they would come up to me and say, hey, Dad, read this book. It's, it's History is so good. And I would read the history. And as a person who absolutely loves history, I, would notice, I started to notice that a lot of the YA historical fiction books didn't really have history as their priority. So I wanted to write books for my kids that actually told accurate history And then I started thinking, well, there's probably other parents who would like YA books for their kids that have accurate history as well. 
So it was actually my kids and their love of reading that set me off on this YA historical fiction path. I think a lot of people, I include myself, uh, who love history, dream of being able to see the past in real time, uh, always assuming we can get out uh, (laughs) before we encounter the nasty bits, of which there are many. Have you always liked the idea of time travel? Oh, yeah, like, definitely. There's been so many books that I've read that have talked about historical figures or events that I just think, oh, my goodness, I would love to have been a fly on the wall and just have seen like take the city of rome you can visit rome nowadays and you can see the Colosseum or at least pieces of it and you can see a few ruined arches and a few other roman ruins here and there but it's all built up with modern day rome on top of it so even a simple thing like being able to go back in time and see what rome looked like in its heyday like probably around the year 90, when it had all of its great triumphal arches and its monuments and its palaces and its city streets, like, filled with marble and decorations. And that's just one event. There's also so many great people. Like, if you you think there's the, the tomb of Genghis Khan, for instance, still has not been found. And think of all the great historical treasure and plunder from his empire that is buried with him. There's also people. Like, it would be so great to have a sit-down with someone like Julius Caesar and talk to him and say, figure out what he was thinking, what he was planning. So there's just so many different figures and that to, to go back in time, it would <laughs> I would need multiple time travels to send myself back to multiple periods and and multiple regions, because there's so much in the past that I would just love to know. And I don't think I'm the only one. I think so many people would love to have this ability just to travel back to the past and see these things for themselves. Oh, yes, I definitely would. Um, Tell us about Daniel Renfrew, uh, your main character who does the time traveling for you. How would you describe him as a personality early in the series? What does he want from life? Well, I looked at him as just a typical teenage male. I, I, I've had quite a bit of experience being a teenage male myself. And I knew how I looked at life when I was that age. And I have two teenage sons. I, I saw what they kind of wanted out of life. And a lot of it is just relaxation. Just want to sit back, play video games, watch a few movies, hang out with friends. Um, except for Dan, because he's also homeschooled, he is suffering a bit of alienation from his peers. So his normal is to be home by himself. He just wants to be normal in that he has friends to hang out with, people he can interact with. His father keeps him fairly restricted from socialization. So he just wants to be more than what he is, which is kind of a homeschooled recluse. And and of course, he still wants to watch his movies and play his video games. Yes, of course he does. I mean, he really is a very believable teenage boy. Um, but then his situation changes very fast. So what happens to him right there in Chapter 2? Well, he comes home again from an afternoon at the mall where he finds out that no one else is at the mall because they're all at 
school. Um, so he's kind of frustrated, feeling down on himself, figuring, of course, he's going to go play some video games because that's kind of his default. And he sees that his dad is being attacked in the living room by a man carrying a sword. So there's a sword fight going on in his living room. And during the confrontation, his dad is stabbed. Uh, but before he slumps to the ground, he manages to throw to Dan some strange metal rod. And before Dan knows it, his living room is gone, and he's now in some strange forest. It's hard to imagine anything more disorienting uh, than landing in the past, especially since you wouldn't necessarily realize that it was the past right away. Um, how does Daniel cope? This was kind of difficult for me. I, I had to put myself in these shoes. Like, if I ended up in a forest, what would my own reaction be? My, my first reaction is like, there's no way I'm going to believe that I travel through time, of course. It's like, okay, I must be dreaming. And then... From there, it's like, no, it's not dreaming. Then have to go to, all right, there was some sort of weird transportation mechanism, you know, a drugging and a kidnapping. So I, I feel that Daniel goes through what are, he, he's trying to go from one plausible excuse to another one. But as he keeps shooting down his own plausible excuses, he's kind of running out of alternatives. And when he actually finds that he is in, has traveled to the past, then he's suddenly facing this daunting realization that he's out of his depths, as, as I would expect all of us would. And this is where his coping mechanism is to basically scramble. There, there's no, he has no set plan of, oh, I'm stuck in time. Here's my... 10-step plan to resolve the situation. He, he's now faced on just reacting to every situation that's thrown at him, and some of his choices may not be the best, but again, he's only 16, totally out of element, so he has no choice but to kind of scramble for a solution at every possible path on the road. Well, yes. I mean, I'm a lot older than 16, but I think I would react the same way because unless you've got survivalist training, for starters, how do you survive in an 11th century forest, even if you <laughs> figure out that it is an 11th century forest? Yeah, of course. Like, he's, he's facing the, the difficulties of, one, mere survival. Um, now, granted, his father had given many skills to work on, so... That is the one saving grace for Dan, is that his father had prepped him for a lot of this. Now, his father had never told him what he was being prepped for, but the skills are still there underneath everything. So he, he still has training in how to even just build a campsite in the wild, how to fight both martial arts and with medieval, medieval weapons. He has training in some languages. He has training in history. So he has a lot of skills that he can fall back on once he gets through the initial panic and his kind of fight-or-flight response to begin with. And, and slowly that kind of training starts to rear its head as he progresses throughout the book, and he, he becomes less reactionary and starts more to think things through. 
And why did you pick 1066 for his first jump in time? Uh, I love 1066. Um, to me, it's probably, for the English-speaking world, the most pivotal point in history. Like, this is the year where King Harold you know, lost his throne to William from Normandy. And at that point in time, all of England changed from being a Germanic-speaking country, kind of separated from the continent, to now being a country with an aristocracy that spoke French, which in turn altered our language. And because of this French connection, it also heavily involved England in European politics for all of history, basically. We move on to things like the Hundred Years' War. We have King Richard with the Crusades. Um, we have so much interaction now between England and the continent. Um, I also really like 1066 because it's kind of the last year of the Anglo-Saxon and I have, a, have an affinity towards the Anglo-Saxons. When I was in university, as part of my English courses, I actually took Old English language and literature. I took many courses in it. And so I, I read Old English poetry. I read various hymns. I actually read Beowulf in its entirety. All of these in the original Old English language. So I really enjoyed the language and the flow and the feel of it. So when I was thinking of where to place my first book, 1066 was just kind of the, to me, the best spot possible, best choice. Plus, I don't think a lot of people realize how pivotal 1066 was to English-speaking culture. So that's why I thought, you know, I'm going to stick Dan there and hopefully enlighten a few people. Early on, Dan runs into Sam, uh, who is not quite as befuddled as he is, but not entirely in the know either. What does he learn from Sam, and why has Sam's family also failed to pass along crucial information about how the time jump devices work? Well, with Sam, she, of course, is a female. And unfortunately for females, they get the short end of the stick throughout a lot of history. Um... And take someone like Joan of Arc, for instance, who, despite all the things she did for France, in the end was executed basically because she was wearing pants. You know, they couldn't get any other charges to stick against her, but they could get the proof that she repeatedly was wearing pants, which, according to the church at the time, was blasphemous, and therefore she was burned at the stake. So this is just one example of how poorly women have been treated throughout history. You have other things, too, like women did not have the right to be rulers. In many instances, women did not have the right to own property. So unfortunately, um, for women, history is not very friendly to them. So I thought it would be very difficult to have female time jumpers who would have to go in and then alter history. So I decided when writing this story that what makes Sam really special is that she's the only female time jumper. And the reason her father did not ever teach her is because he was expecting to pass it on to his son, kind of 
keep it in the patriarchy. Um, and so he taught the son, did not teach the daughter. It's a, it's a choice that, you know, sounds sexist, but as I said, when you look at history, unfortunately history has not been very favorable to women. But I also think it does make Sam that much more remarkable that she kind of clawed her way past this, just like Joan of Arc did. She, you know, Joan of Arc clawed her way past all these prejudices against women to lead French armies to victory. Sam is doing the same thing. She's kind of clawing her way past all the prejudices to be a successful time jumper. She's a very appealing character. Can you tell us a little bit more about her as a person? She is actually my favorite character in the books. I, I love writing her. Um, she has had a hard life. Um, her father's dead. Her brother's dead. Her mother had left the family early on in her life, and now Sam is living back with her mother and um, stepdad, who she does not enjoy the company of. And she's, because of her life and her own experiences, she's very mistrustful. She's cautious. She is kind of the, the yin to Sam, or to Dan's yang, like, where he's headstrong, impetuous, overly trusting at times. She's the, the careful, cautious one who kind of slows everything down, takes a step back. And because of her nature, she's, she's the one who acts as a guide and a mentor to Dan and also saves himself a lot from his own stupidity. So um, I'm going to ask you a question that I want you to answer only in terms of how it's uh, Daniel understands it early on. That is a part of the fun of the book is for Dan to find out what his mission really is. But what does he discover from those early encounters with Sam uh, he is supposed to be doing or thinks he's supposed to be doing? Well, Dan's original mission for, for himself um, is just he just wants to get home. home. So... He, oh, I, I love the story of the Odyssey, where Odysseus, the overall, the overarching theme is Odysseus just wants to get home. That, that's, that's his overarching mission. He just wants to get home. Now, of course, Sam throws a bit of water on that fire when she explains to him, well, you can't until you fix the glitch that's occurring in time. Because the... the theme that I have in all the books is that time, while well, the history is slightly off, something has gone wrong with the history and the time jumper's job is to go in and fix the glitch in history so that before it has a chance to rewrite the past and drastically affect the future. So part of the mission, or actually I should say the full mission then, is for Dan to figure out what this glitch is. And it's a bit of a mystery, too, because the glitch could be anything. There's there's nothing that magically points out, and you know, there's no huge sign that defend, descends from the heaven and says, this is the glitch. So all the books have a part of the mystery, too, in that they have to decipher the clues and the puzzles and figure out, okay, how is history particularly broken in order for us to fix it. And then, only then, do we have the ability to go home. 
So one of the reasons I, as a historical novelist, would love to time travel is because there's so much we don't know about how people lived, you know, ordinary conventions, um, sights, sounds, smells, all those things that you need in order to write a good historical novel. And Daniel and Sam don't have that information either. So for me, part of their biggest challenge is just fitting in with the world around them. And for different reasons, since Sam's fitting in requires a different set of, um, how should we put this, um, conventions, maybe, than, than Dan's. Um, in any case, um, what strengths do they have to draw on? How do they manage to address this challenge? Not, not necessarily to solve it, but just to get started on it. Well, Dan, he has this, his main ability seems to be to make up stuff on the fly. Um, like any good teenager, he can, you know, lie to his parents, you know, where were you? Out? You know, just make up excuses. Did you take the garbage out? Yeah. So um, that seems to be what saves Dan at the beginning when he faces odd questions, uh, especially in a closed society like the Anglo-Saxons, where every village would know who lived in the village, and they would most likely know the people in the neighboring villages. So when you have a stranger walk into town, suddenly that stranger becomes the focal point. Everybody knows that this is a stranger. It's not like modern society where you walk down the street and after the first few houses, no one else is recognizable to you. You don't know if they're new to the your subdivision or not. It, in Anglo-Saxon society, because of how they had to be careful, there was no police force, so the village had to self-police. You were definitely aware of strangers. So when Dan first meets the Anglo-Saxons, it's only his ability to make up stuff on the fly that starts saving him. And then slowly he find, he sh manages to show his worth to the people and that starts building some trust, and that, that's how he manages to cope. As for Sam, her main strategy, since she's uh, much more distrustful than Dan, much more a, a close, guarded person, her strategy is more avoidance. She tends to hide away. She doesn't approach people. She stays out in the forest, and she, she tries to always kind of watch from a distance so that way she doesn't have to try to fit in. She doesn't have to find herself suffering like ridicule or accusations because she's an unaccompanied female or her hair isn't done properly or she happens to be wearing pants and that's inappropriate clothing for a female at that point in time. So that's how they both kind of try to fit into the time period. We should mention in passing that one of the neat traits of the time jump devices is that they let you speak the local language, so they can actually communicate with people, <laughs> even if a little imperfectly. So they, they do have linguistic abilities, even though they lack all of the cultural um, norms that, that would help them behave in the right way. Um, the um, So let's skip over to the next book now because we don't want to get too far into the story. Um, 
By the beginning of the Celtic deception, Daniel's contemporary circumstances have changed. Um, but he does take an, undertake another time jump uh, without knowing where he will end up. So what made you decide to send him to Celtic Britain cir circa 60 AD? Well, the Celts have always been to me a, a group of people who um, got the short end of the historical stick. So they were such a vastly spread out race of people all the way from Ireland to the, the Middle East and through mainly Roman conquest over centuries, their culture, their language has been completely wiped out. And very few people know about them. And there, there's so few details about them that I, I thought they deserved a, a mention. Like even a, a huge tribe like the Goths, we still have a Gothic Bible, so we can at least know the Gothic language. But there's so few scraps of Celtic languages or dialects available now to us. And we just have some archaeological records here and there. And we have, uh, like, Caesar's very biased commentaries about his Gallic Wars. So I wanted to try and give a view of the Celts from their perspective. Just because, like I said, I've always felt bad for them as a people. And, and how much their culture and language was obliterated over history. And what is the situation in Wales like at this time? Well, unfortunately, it's um, the the Romans have been slowly expanding, and this is just before Boudicca's rebellion. So the Romans had decided to wipe out the Druids on the island of Anglesey. There's various reasons why they may have done it. Nothing was ever officially carved in stone, like they were attacking the Druids for this reason. But um, most historians believe that the Druids, since they were the like the keepers of the, the language, the lore, the history, the customs, and the law, basically the main thinkers and judges of the Celtic people, um, historians believe that the Romans were trying to basically wipe out the potential leadership for any further rebellions uh, among the Celtic peoples. So you have in Wales at this time um, spreading Roman influence, some Celtic tribes fight, fighting back, some actually allying themselves with Rome, but it's generally a period of upheaval, turmoil, and it's you know, not, not the best of times for the Celtic peoples. Tell us a bit about Atto and the other Celts who take Daniel and Sam under their wing. Um, they seem like they must have been fun to write, especially Atto and his wife, Senna. Yeah, they, I really enjoyed them. Now, unfortunately, there's not much to, there, there's not too many Celtic examples in literature that I could draw from. So, like, the, the greatest Celt is uh, Vercingetorix, who led the, the Celts in Gaul, modern-day France, during the siege of Alicia. But even he ended up having to surrender to um, Caesar. But most Celts we read about in history, they're always mentioned by Roman people or uh, Greeks. So, unfortunately, there's no great Celtic sources to, who are describing their heroes, um, so, I, unfortunately, I did have to kind of 
think, like, what were the Celts like? And I, Senna, I figured, she's trying to raise her children in this area where the Romans are coming in and they've had to burn their own village, they're fleeing. So I looked at her as kind of a typical mother throughout the ages. She just wants stability, she wants safety, she wants to provide for her kids. Whereas Otto, I thought of him, he's from the warrior class, so he's not a merchant, he's not a smith. He still has this will to fight, but he he understands that his world is collapsing around him, and he doesn't know what else to do but to fight. And he has this kind of you know, carefree attitude, it seems, at times, but when really pressed, he's, he knows the reality of his situation. And I think a lot of the Celts are kind of in between the two of them. They, they realize the situation's bad. They just want someplace safe where they can live outside of Roman influence and just be their own people. But they also realize that that probably isn't going to happen. Is there anything you can say about the war among the time jumpers themselves? Um, it's pretty clear from the beginning, or at least quite early on, that there is some kind of conflict going on. I'm trying to think of how, to, how much to say without giving it all away. But yes, I, I, when you have something like the ability to travel through time, there are going to be people who want to enrich themselves from it. Um, now, the main issue with the war is that there are those who want to gain from their time traveling and those who just feel themselves as protector of humanity who should just do their role and be happy with a job well done. And the thing about being a time jumper is that at the end of the day, there's no pats on the back. These are people who live kind of in a secret world outside of society, so there's no parades. There's, there's no medals at the end of the day. There's, there's no financial gain unless you happen to find an ancient gold coin in the process and bring it back home with you. So it ends up becoming a war between those who believe that the time jumpers should not only get rewarded, but could also change society for what they view as the better versus those who want to maintain the status quo of time jumpers just helping out society in the shadows. And when we get to Dan's point of interaction, the time jumpers who are viewing it, the situation as something where they should be able to profit more and also start changing society, becoming leaders in society and taking a more active role in governing and rulership, are the ones who are winning the war. What would you like people to take away from the novels in this series? Well, I would like, one, for them to get a good overview of different parts of history that I find fascinating and hopefully find fascinating as well. And, you know, I, I would love to encourage people to go out and actually read other historical books and on their own to actually learn more about our past. Like there's so many fantastic historical stories that you don't even need to read fiction to read about you know, mystery, intrigue, murder. It, it's all there in history. 
and it's all true. Like, or well, true enough as per it's being recorded. You know, something like again Caesar and his commentaries and his, you know, everything's kind of inflated a bit. Um, from a emotional or you know personal growth standpoint, I'd love it if young people realize that hey, you know, there's there's more to life you know you can you can stand up for something and you can try to change things it's okay to be scared you just have to act sometimes you have to do you have to get over your fears and just do things so th- those are probably the two main things i think those are great i uh i love the first one because i always tell people you know if there's one thing in my novels that looks to you to be completely outrageous that's the one that's historically true. <laughs> because you can't make that stuff up and have people believe you. Yeah, it has to be true. Yeah, I had, I had my son come up and say, oh my, he was reading a particular scene. And he said, did this really happen? And he was in shock. And I was like, yes, it did. Yeah, because as you said, you can't make up some unbelievable stuff without people challenging it. And that, that's what's encouraging. It's like, go ahead, challenge it. Go on to a website. Go research it in a book and go, oh my goodness, this is true. And then research some more. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that 100%. The next book in the series is due next March. So I'm guessing it's already in production. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, that one is called The Mongol Ascension. And this one takes Dan and Sam off to Mongolia um, where they meet a young 17-year-old Mongol by the name of Temujin, who is off on a quest to get back his wife. Um, and, you know, I don't want to say too much because I never want to give stuff away, but it, it kind of takes them into areas they definitely haven't been to before, considering that, you know, the first two books have been just on the in England, basically, while well, Great Britain... So it takes them to different culture, different time period, and you know, it, it's definitely out of their comfort zone from a fitting-in perspective. Oh, I definitely have to read that one. That's my, uh, I'm very familiar with that story because I write about uh, Timogene's descendants. Oh, okay. Yeah, so it's, it, it's, it's a great story, though, the you know, him off on his quest for his wife and how that kind of led to future events. Oh, absolutely, and his blood brother and all of that. Is that what you're working on now, or are you already on to the next one, the fourth one? I'm actually on to the seventh one. So I've already written four, five, and six, and then the concluding one is seven. So I'm actually, and again, I've always picked areas that have really interested me or you know, have, have kind of been great turning points. So book four sends them off to the, the Battle of Thermopylae where the Spartans and their Greek allies have their heroic defense against the Persians. Uh, book five is the wonderful story of Joan of Arc because I, I really want to show a have a, a strong female historical character in my series and who better than Joan there like all, all the trouble she had to go through and not just when she was captured and you know executed at the end even the the difficulties she had to face just against her own side trying to convince the people 
to let her lead some troops, let her free Orleans, and how much prejudice she had to fight against. I, I think it's such an inspiring story. And then Book Six sends them off to Rome during the time of Domitian. And then, last of all, Book Seven will be um, the Siege of Constantinople during the Fourth Crusade, which to me was a, a huge turning point in history of, well, East-West relations and you know the the church. So, but but that's where the series ends, and that's that's the one I'm currently working on. Well, I wish you all the best, and uh, Dan and Sam as well, uh, because it sounds like they're going to have a lot of very interesting adventures. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us today, Andrew. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I've been talking with Andrew Varga about his Jump in Time series. Find out more about him at andrewvargaauthor.com. Keep up with our news by following at New Books Network on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. You can find out more about me and my books at cplesley.com, where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until my next conversation about historical fiction on the New Books Network.